Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Uh, I'm Dan Morganti, and joining me tonight on the panel is Ro Murray. How you doing, Ro? How are you? How has your week in how has your week in uh, tech been? Uh, it's been relatively well behaved this week. No major mishaps or things going wrong, except for my microphone being a bit wiggly tonight. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have absolutely nothing exciting to report, except that I have been checking out um, e-bikes because I'm a little bit interested in doing the e-bike thing. And I found yep. a company that will let you rent them. Okay. For a couple of months to see if you like them. Yep. So I might do that. That's that sounds pretty good. That's that's positive. Yeah. Um, yeah. How's I, your week in tech um, been? I just hit my savings milestone. I'm I can now afford a PlayStation Five. So oh. um, my birthday's coming up next uh, two weeks time. So um, I'll I'll see how I go. I might get it then for myself. Amazing. Well, happy early birthday. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, tonight on Bite Into It, we are talking to Professor of Philosophy at Monash, Monash University, Robert Sparrow, about an article just published called Minotaurs, Not Centaurs, The Future of Manned, Unmanned Teaming. The article talks about the future of warfare and where humans and AI sit in the decision-making hierarchy, as well as the ethical implications of involving AI into warfare situations at all. Uh, then we were talking to Richard Hoffmeyer about Cart Life, a grayscale pixel art game about characters running a food cart and dealing with the pressures of modern life. Uh, Cart Life swept up awards at the IGF in 2013 and then disappeared. Richard has now partnered with Ad Hoc Studios to finally bring the game to fruition. Uh, first up, though, let's talk about some news uh, catching up this week. Uh, in an Australian first, robotics, uh, the Victorian gov- government is partnering with the uh, St. Vincent's Hospital to deliver better patient outcomes for Victoria's needing neurosurgery uh, by getting a new robotic exoscope. Um, so uh, last week, the Minister for Health, Marianne Tom- uh, Thomas, last week visited St. Vincent's Hospital uh, in Melbourne to see the MODIS 5 up close and meet, meet the surgeons using the new technology to deliver the safest care to patients needing a brain or spinal surgery. Uh, the newly purchased uh, Synaptive Modus 5 enables surgeons and the entire team in the operating theatre to see a magnified 3D image of the surgical field in high def, real-time 4K video during microsurgical procedures on the brain and spinal cord. That's some full-on technology being put to good use. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, Yeah, and I mean, I, I loved how, you know, it, it pointed out, you know, decreasing physical strain and fatigue during long surgeries. Mm. Um, you know, I've got a couple of mates that are theatre nurses, one's in transplant, one's in cardiac, and they have absolutely done 18-hour shifts on their feet in theatre, the whole bit. And, um, look, anything that, you know calms the farm down, you know, in there and, and makes things more visible. The future is here. It's Absolutely. It's a very cool thing. Um, yeah, so it's, it seems like it's doing a lot, like 4K, like high def, uh, you know, that's probably even like has a smoothie maker on it as well. Like it's, <laughs> um, it's I'm, I'm so glad that we have this kind of thing in mm. in Australia and in Victoria. Um, 
yeah, it's uh, it's great to see. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's um, so it's currently at St Vinnie's Hospital. Um, would love to see it pop up at you know the Alfred, the Austin, you know Monash, that sort of thing. So, you know, hopefully we can keep investing like that and um, yeah, have have much better patient outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, what else has been happening? I think there's a bit of an update from some news we had last week. <laughs> well, speaking of terrible outcomes, um, <laughs> you know, on last week's show, the crew talked about the data breach that happened. So anyone who's with latitude um, is in a little bit of a strife. You know, we've had the Optus one, which was an absolute banger. We had the Medibank one, which was a banger. Now we've got the latitude one, also a banger. So um, on Monday, a new statement was released. Latitude Financial has confirmed that around around 7.9 million Australian and New Zealand driver's licence numbers were stolen. So that is confirmed from Latitude directly. 3.2 million, which is around 40% of those licence numbers, were provided in the last 10 years. So some of them, they'd been holding on to them for a bloody long time. Yeah. Um, and they also said around 53,000 passport numbers were stolen, um, but less than 100 customers had their monthly financial statements stolen. Uh, Latitude is saying they will reimburse customers who choose to replace their stolen ID documents. Big damn deal. You've just had all your data compromised. We'll pay for your passport replacement. Yeah. Well, at least they're they're doing that much. And it seems like these companies are getting at least slightly better at um, dealing with these kinds of things. Uh, I don't think we'll ever get... um, to a point where this thing never happens, mm. but at least they're releasing, like making press releases, letting it be known what was taken and how people should go about uh, replacing their documents or you know changing passwords or you know um, being able to protect themselves uh, yeah. if they're vulnerable. Absolutely, um, they you know this, there's a security firm called Trend Micro who was investigating it and um, they run a. a paid program called Australian Identity Protection and um, they said that um, 75.2% of its uh, subscribers were notified that their data was found on the dark web off the back of the Latitude thing. So that data was taken and it was sold immediately. Um, Email was the most common piece of information found in a breach. Um, So essentially um, it's it also pointed out as part of their um, statement that um, Australia was experiencing 118 attacks per connected household in 2022, which includes stuff like your smart TV. So Whoa. there is some really sophisticated stuff going on and um, anything like an email address that does make it onto the dark web, th- that if it is connected with a driver's licence, which has, of course, your home address on it, yeah, can, you know, the computers can connect the dots and really start getting into, you know, accounts and stuff like that. So um, it, it is just a, a fine reminder to keep your passwords tight, potentially even rotate your email addresses every couple of years. Yeah. Keep checking your credit report because that'll be the first indicator of a breach bad enough to, you know, really hurt you financially. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff. But it's uh, not not a good look for, you know, Latitude et al. No, but it's, yeah, becoming more commonplace. So they're kind of getting lost in the mm. lost in the weeds or lost, in, you know, in, in amongst everyone else. So, um, yeah, we're, um, at least they've come out and told us and told us exactly. what, you know. Um, I will give a modicum of credit for that. A small <laughs> yeah. elephant stamp, yeah. if not a gold star. <laughs> yeah, that's it. 
<laughs> um, in uh, some better news, uh, the CSIRO has released a roadmap that charts the major role for the storage through energy transition. Um, a new roadmap released shows that energy storage capacity must increase significantly over coming decades to meet rapidly rising electricity demands. Um, Storage of renewable energy will be essential to Australia's net zero transition, but will require significant investment according to the latest roadmap released today by Australia's National Science Agency, the CSIRO. Um, I think this is what we've known for a long time, that battery mm. technology and energy storage uh, needs to come a long way for us to be able to 100% utilise um, renewable energies. Um, and, yeah, the the fact that the CSIRO has released this roadmap is showing that they're um you know they're t- they're taking it seriously as well and they're um mm. at least showing a way forward to um being 100 percent uh net zero yeah, carbon emissions yeah absolutely critical step and it's obviously going to have to come from a lot of different angles private enterprise should be doing it as well um state government yeah. other federal government bodies councils everyone should be doing it um but this is a really big step for you know a, an arm of government as as meaty as the csiro so onwards ho folks yes and uh hopefully uh, everyone else uh takes heed and and does the same thing you're listening to a triple r podcast Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The future of warfare is often depicted as being fought by machines on humans' behalf, but the future is just around the corner and the reality may not be what we think. Robert Sparrow is a professor of philosophy at Monash University Data Futures Institute and has many articles about the ethics of science and technology. He's just written an article called Minotaurs, Not Centaurs, The Future of Manned, Unmanned Teaming, which is all about the hierarchy of humans in the, in the decision-making tree of war and the ethical issues of incorporating autonomous weapon systems or allowing AI to give tactical orders. Welcome to Bite Into It, uh, Professor Rob Sparrow. Good evening. Um, could you just explain to us in very basic terms what uh, Minotaur and Centaur mean? Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, these are both figures from uh, Greek mythology. So uh, a um, centaur was a, a um, creature with the uh, body of a horse and the upper body, the lower body of a horse and the arms and head and upper body uh, of a man. Uh, they were classically uh, men. Uh, Minotaur was a individual with the head of a bull and the body of a man. So they're different ways of thinking about the relationship between the human and the other. And how does this relate to uh, warfare and the uh, um, implementation of technology uh, around people in the battlefield? When you're selling AI to people or you're selling robots to people and the people who need to buy these systems are themselves highly skilled, the last thing you want to say to them is, look, this is going to put you out of business. This will take the parts of your job that you enjoy and think are important and eliminate you from those (laughs) roles. So typically when people are pitching AI systems to industry or even to the military, uh, what they will say is, look... The machine will do the bits of your job that you hate and you'll get to do the really important stuff. And so it's a model of human beings giving orders to uh, to machines. Essentially, a human being is the 
head of the team and the robots and the AI do the kind of grunt work. Uh, I think there's reasons to believe that that's not all that likely. And in fact, it might be the other way around, that uh, the machines end up being in charge and human beings end up following orders uh, from AI systems. And indeed, when we start to look at how AI is entering our lives, it's often better at cognitive tasks. It's better at doing mental work than it is at doing physical work, which is why AI flourishes in virtual environments, yeah. uh, for instance, whereas we don't have robot butlers yet. So when it comes to the future of the military, I think we need to be thinking about the possibility uh, that it won't be like kind of Iron Man. Uh, what it will be is um, uh, getting your orders from an AI and slugging through the mud <laughs> to yeah. carry out those orders. Um so are we already seeing this kind of stuff in practice at all or is it um, still a little way off in the future? We're seeing lots of robots and lots of AI in the military. Uh, there's immense enthusiasm for uh, autonomy and robotics in military uh, circles. Uh, at the moment, there is often... Uh, a human being in or on the loop, but that's often turned out to be uh, less important than people think because of what's called automation bias. People tend to overtrust machines or decisions need to be made so quickly that you don't have time to second-guess the machine. So in practice, it is actually often uh, machines that are making decisions and then human beings are just going along uh, with them. There are starting to emerge systems where people are essentially being told what to do uh, by AI systems. There's a, an example in the Ukraine or in Ukraine where um, uh, the Ukrainians with some assistance, I, as I understand it from American programmers, uh, developed an algorithm for assigning targets to weapons, which is actually apparently uh, quite close, similar to the task that Uber you know, needs to <laughs> assign yeah. uh, drivers to uh, to customers, yeah. and it, it essentially tells gunnery crews, it's your turn to fire at this target. So we are seeing people attacking targets on the basis of algorithms. Um, threat assessment algorithms have played a role in warfare for a long time, where fighter pilots are, are told to prioritise particular uh, targets uh, as a result of a computer interpreting uh, the radar images. And the practice of so-called signature strikes in drone warfare where uh, people are attacked on the basis of their uh, profile of movement and electronic communications, who they talk to when, when they talk to. Uh, there's a fair amount of algorithmic processing going on in deciding who is um, maybe uh, worth looking at and perhaps even killing. Yeah. Um, so this obviously has a whole lot of ethical implications, which is uh, what your article was also dealing with. Um, I think um, for the general listener, our most um, cognitive example of AI um, and whether like it can be held accountable or how it would assign uh, you know, itself in certain situations is the, the Tesla example where it runs into... It's running down a hallway and there's a baby and an old person in the road and it has to choose. It's got to crash into someone it has to choose. Um, is that kind of uh, that kind of thing like what people would be thinking about when they're going into war? Like if they're receiving their orders from a machine, is it like can that AI be held responsible or do, um, do people 
um, have hesitancy to accept these kinds of orders? Very few people think that machines can be held responsible. They don't seem to be the right sorts of creatures. And indeed, some of my work, I've argued that it needs to be at least possible that you you need to be able to imagine punishing someone for our concepts of responsibility uh, to have application. But you can't imagine punishing a machine, or if you did punish a machine, you can't imagine telling whether or not the punishment was actually successful uh, or not. So in general, people think responsibility for decisions will always rest with a human being. Uh, One of my worries in this area is whether that will actually be fair to the human being, because uh, particularly when things are happening at very high speed, in what's called the fog of war, there's multiple... um, parties involved, uh, someone may have to accept responsibility for doing something on the basis of advice provided to them by an AI system when really they were essentially just following uh, the machine. And so for me, that's one of the big uh, questions is whether or not we can develop a set of what's called responsibility practices where we can hold people responsible in order that we get good outcomes uh, as we start integrating these uh, sophisticated AI systems into warfare. So this, like, you're thinking about these ethical issues and, like, putting a lot of thought into it. Uh, are you find What do you find is, like, other people who are making these decisions, whether they're going to implement um, AI or, you know, autonomous weapons in the battlefield... How do they see these ethical issues? Is it even brought to their attention? I mean, um, this article was published in Parameters, which I believe is a US Army or US military adjacent journal. It's Uh, the Journal of the US Army War College, which is the um, sort of ideas think tank for the US Army. Yeah. So what's their kind of um, uptake of like these kinds of um, questions and meanings and understandings? So we have some differences of opinion (laughs) on on these matters. I I mean, I've actually been involved as a critic of autonomous weapon systems uh, for a long long time. Uh, But it has to be said, uh, people in the military take these debates very seriously. I mean, professional soldiers are very highly trained. They are uh, quite conscious of their role and the ethical components of what they do, they recognise that sometimes behaving unethically can be a uh, public relations disaster, which in turn has implications for your success in the broader conflict. So they take ethics quite seriously. That doesn't mean that they always do the right thing, and it doesn't certainly doesn't mean that everybody does the right thing. Uh, but um, people in the military are deeply worried about the possibility that. Uh, the what they think of as a warrior ethos or, or a what's, what philosophers would call a role morality, the, this sort of special um, we hand over responsibility for, you know, when the state says let's go to war and kill people, we have a professional class of people whose job that is and they are taking on a duty and they take that quite seriously and they are desperately worried about the impact of these uh, systems. So my, my work on the ethics of military robotics is widely read. There's, you know, master's thesis at West Point on it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I mean, there's lots of people working in this space, including uh, lots of people within the military who are trying to think about 
what's appropriate and what's inappropriate when it comes to uh, the use of robotic weapons and autonomous systems. Obviously, they tend to be, uh, particularly the US military, tends to be a bit (laughs) bit more keen on this stuff. Uh, But at the same time, that idea that... uh, you know, the general might be replaced by something, by a game engine, a, a war game engine, effectively. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that's something that they're really worried about. And so, yes, I do think this is a, it's a very um, important set of questions within the military. And um, I think the, you're saying, like, the general being replaced. Um, the thing I'm, like, just from a an uneducated point of view, the thing I'd be most worried about is like the removal of the human, even if it's just a um, yes or no, like a set of instructions put forward or someone saying, yep, move forward with giving that to the team or whatever, um, but just completely removing humans from the decision-making process at all. Um, that to me is the most terrifying thing. What like what, what's um, What do you feel about these kinds of... Um, technologies being implemented in warfare? So that question has been discussed a lot in the debate about autonomous weapon systems, where an autonomous weapon system is essentially a a weapon where an onboard computer uh, is making a decision about what to attack and when, and there are existing systems that uh, some people think meet that description, and there's certainly lots more on the drawing boards. Um, I think a human being should always make a conscious choice about killing someone. I've defended with some colleagues the idea that people have a right not to be killed by a robot, that (laughs) a human, if your life is going to be snuffed out, some human being should at least consider the matter. Uh, But it has to be said that, um, you know, when it comes to how you're killed, the weapons are often the same, i.e. the missile that is fired by the the drone... uh, which in the future might be on kind of full auto mode, is the same missile that's fired by a a manned helicopter. And given all the terrible stuff that happens in war, uh, it is quite hard to explain why it should matter that it's a machine that has made uh, this decision, especially given that in some sense there are already... You know, people making calculations in the back rooms, deciding who gets bombed, who gets uh, gets killed. Uh, that's why this is in- interesting for philosophers to try to unpack that intuition that there's something about the relationship between human beings and machines that means that they shouldn't be given life and death power over us. Mm, I'm quite curious about the um, the priority target situation, whether it's in you know when these AI systems are being employed, and it might be you know drones versus robots versus whatever, um, because, of course, there has been discussion for a very long time that, um, you know, people might not even be involved. It'll be robots fighting robots on two opposing sides, and obviously that's not really going to be at the core of it. But um, are these systems likely to um, prioritise things like infrastructure, unmanned weapons, that kind of stuff over human life, or is it, you know, likely to be all-out people fodder? I know that's a quite simplistic way of looking at it, but, yeah, that no, prioritisation thing. There's lots in that question. I mean, I think it's a fantasy, fantasy to think that war will ever stop at destroying the enemy's robots. At some level, war is essentially a political mm. contestation. People don't surrender just because their robots have been uh, destroyed. Yeah. So the idea that we can fight wars in the future without harming human beings, I think that's uh, that's pretty 
uh, unlikely. Has to be said, people always look at the latest new technology and think that it will make war more humane. People said that about aircraft. They said that about poison gas. Mm. They said that about guns rather than, uh, than swords. And so this idea that somehow handing over military decision-making to machines is suddenly going to humanise war, and there's certainly people who argue that out there. Uh, I don't think that's, uh, that's mm. realistic. There are some circumstances already where uh, decisions need to be made so quickly. So defending ships against cruise missiles, uh, for instance, yep. that's already been handed over essentially to computer-controlled cannons because human beings simply can't target um, mm. objects moving at that, that speed. Yep. Uh, Anti-submarine warfare, mine warfare, um, you know, maybe air defence, mm. they're all likely to be places where we see more and more autonomy sooner rather than later. Infantry combat, not so much. Yeah. In part, that's for reasons that I discuss in this paper, which is machines are simply not very good at moving around in the physical world. When the environment gets cluttered, the robots tend to fail, uh, whereas the missiles and the submarines, because they can move freely in three dimensions... Uh, some of that, you know, working out what's a tree and what's a human being is not so important. No, exactly. And I mean, humans can be really quite unpredictable. I remember reading a um, a summary of a big, um, you know, war game that America, you know, put on two different teams, whatever. And one of the team generals went, okay, we're, we're going, we're MacGyvering this thing. We're basically switching comms off and we're, you know, really doing bush tactics. We're going dark. We're going to behave really unpredictably. And they... Um, absolutely creamed it and apparently um he was you know put on disciplinary measures because it's like well you don't fight like that and it's like well people can be really unpredictable and those outcomes can be quite challenging and um you know maybe that's one area as well that the machines might not be able to pick up in certain things particularly that infantry type situation that human unpredictability yes so i think this will be quite domain specific mm. in, in warfare and I, I do think people like to think they're always better at everything than machines but actually the evidence is kind of coming in that machines are better than us at lots of uh, things mm. I mean I do think for instance that what's called distinction or discrimination in warfare which is telling uh, who's a legitimate target, who's in uniform, who's fighting at you, that's a really hard problem for a machine system. But I certainly know engineers and people working in this field who point out how bad human beings are at making that decision, and in, in part because they're scared or they're racist or mm. they're brainwashed, and they say, look, my robot can do, uh, do better than that. Um, I, I mean, I, I do wonder about the amount of faith that is being put in this uh, technology. People are talking about the next generation of strike fighter aircraft being perhaps, you know, without having space space in it for in a cockpit for a human being because they, mm -hmm. the AI systems will outfight human beings because they can pull higher Gs in the aircraft yeah, and they yeah. can decide more quickly. I can't, I've never been able to get to some, someone to commit to fully unmanned submarines. I mean, there's a live issue in Australia because submarine warfare is ripe for disruption uh, mm -hmm. via these these technologies. Yeah. But the expense of submarines is so huge that I do wonder whether someone's going to say, look, 
we're going to have this thing that costs, I don't know, $2 billion and it's going to be run entirely by an onboard computer when it's very hard to test it. Mm, absolutely, uh, and, and submarines aren't a uh, impulse buy, shall we say, <laughs> and no. they're not a short-term buy either. Obviously, with the recent um, Australian commitment, that's I think it's a thirty or a fifty-year um, submarine building commitment. So, um, you know, a lot of retrofitting yeah. will be <laughs> yeah, absolutely. On yeah. The go so there. There, I mean, there are real questions about what so in thirty, forty years, what submarine warfare will look mm. like and whether there is actually space for those kind of boats. Uh, that's that's not clear. Yeah. Mm. Um, it looks like there's some uh, you know, troubles ahead in ethical situations involving warfare. Um as there always is. I don't think uh, that's that's as old as time, as old as war itself. Um Professor Rob Sparrow uh, from the Monash University of Data and Future Institute, thanks so much for coming on the show, um, taking time out of your busy schedule to um, uh, explain in simple terms for us the uh, ethical implications of um, technology in the battlefield. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Coming up after this, we've got uh, an interview with uh, Richard Hoffmeyer, um, who was, is the creator of Cart Life, a game that uh, showed up about 10 years ago and it's been in a little bit of limbo since. Triple Ah Cart Life is a grayscale pixel art game about characters running food carts and dealing with the pressures of modern life. Uh, Cart Life swept up swept up awards at the IGF in 2013. And uh, has since um, now been picked up by Ad Hoc Studios uh, to give the game the release it deserves. Um, joining us now is Richard Hoffmeyer, the creator of the game. Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, taking a peek. No worries. Um, I guess the, um, the first question is, uh, what's taken so long to uh, get a, like a full release for Cart Life? It's a tough one. I think uh, I probably had 10 years of growing up to do before uh, mm-hmm. I could kind of finish what I'd started to say. But, uh, you know, a big part of it, I suppose, is always bugs, fixing those, uh, making sure the, the kind of ship is, is watertight before trying to send it out across the planet. Um, I think that, you know, uh, doing it solo as kind of an outsider or an amateur, that's probably kind of a benefit to double standard that people are more, I think, willing to, to forgive again for um, crashing or <laughs> coming up short with bugs and glitches and stuff. But, uh, you know, now that um presuming to, you know, uh, join the realm of capable professionals with this one, um, that's kind of our first priority is just making sure that it runs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's uh, taken 10 years from, uh, like, first release to now. Um, what's changed in 10 years um, in your game and what's changed around your game um, that's maybe aided in its design or changed it in some way? Oh, sure. Uh, well, uh, I mean, we're moving it to um, uh, from a, kind of a, a legacy tool set into something more contemporary. Um, so we're probably going to be releasing this game on different consoles. It was originally done uh, just for mouse and keyboard, so there was a lot of typing involved, uh, player kind of paralleling their uh, player character's thoughts through text explicitly. Now we're negotiating with 
controller buttons, left hand for the left analog stick, right hand for the right stick, and so on. Um, so I'm kind of maintaining that uh, fidelity and that kind of like poetic aspect into, you know, more material video game tech, I suppose, is part of it. Um, uh, I'm wondering, is, is, is Dan Salmon part of this episode? I just... Uh- Dan Salmon isn't part of this episode, but he is part of the show. <laughs> yes, he was on last sure, week. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> yeah I, I was listening to last week's episode, and he remarked on how he had just been rounding 11 years on Bite Into It. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm great. wondering, it's like a, your show is much more um, contemporaneous than it has been throughout like the whole thing. It's very um, you know, in the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder how those 11 years might have gone uh, for... Dan and the rest of the show focusing only on, say, 2013 and just trying to, you know, maintain a kind of, you know, fidelity to that brief time span. Um, something that we've, we're adding to Cart Life now is that uh, once players are done with each of their three playable characters, if they choose to play through all three in whatever order they want to play them, yeah, one of those characters is returns to Georgetown in 2023 see the world and the city there and the people who were changed by the choices they made as those street vendors oh, back when. what a wonderful choice yeah um so can we just get an overview of the game um so like it's you've said it's just three characters and um how would you describe what what genre would you put this game into <laughs> well uh if it was just me, I always lied to people and said it's a retail simulation <laughs> and uh, try to keep it dry and, and cold that way. Um, my hope, of course, is like to surprise people uh, who get into it and see that it's maybe more serious than it seems, more more um, more about real life than video games typically tend to get. Um, there's some boredom in this game. There's some... <laughs> pain and some uh some frustration i think for most players and um i think like you know keeping a dry premise or at least uh promising as little as possible in terms of feelings is beneficial because everybody you know um responds differently if if at all i always feel pretty lucky when anybody really gives it a chance um you know being a part of someone feeling anything through video games is pretty special um so I, I don't know. I don't want to make any promises about it um, because I think also that, you know the, those things often uh, separate us too and, and become you know, much more subjective. Um, you're talking about a, a retail simulator. I can't remember what said the thing about you know 100 people read a line of code and they all read the same thing, but if somebody a line of poetry and you have a hundred different poems, uh, um, so something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Very so poetic. When it comes to I guess. Well, I don't know. I don't put it well, but I think um, it it does end up. Uh, I think in subjective territory. I don't know. Um, I think uh, I've been encouraged by uh, ad hoc and, and our uh, our team to think of it more as a, a negative simulation. I suppose so. Uh, you know, a core uh, of a time clock and a system. I now I'm only thinking of it in terms um, in relation to like. Uh, was it called Enchanted by Dragon Bear? I still haven't played it, but I listened to your episode about it. Yeah. And I'm thinking um, about how their players are dividing their time between 
prioritizing their family and their uh, and their customers. It kind of caught between it's sort of what art life is about too. Yeah, it's like. It, uh, there's like elements of like managing money and um, like you, you don't have time to do both things and you know the the how, how do you make these like these mundane elements of life compelling and um, make people want to play it and is it is it the choice where someone has to sacrifice uh, spending time with their family over making money or um, is it like these real life choices what's um, what do you think makes this stuff compelling I think that these dilemmas are inherently compelling for all of us um, to varying degrees. I mean, some of them are more relatable than others. One of the characters is a single mom going through a divorce. Uh, one of the characters is an immigrant living in a hotel. One of the characters has all the freedom in the world, but he's more or less alone. Um, I think that the kind of inherent drama of, of each of these characters is, you know, I hope at least baseline compelling enough to the point where I think my best approach artistically is to be as understated and as subtle as I can to, to let the consequences of those choices that players have the freedom to make be more, more uh, subjectively meaningful for each person. It's yeah, it's very well like thought out for the type of story you're trying to tell. And like part of it as well is that the art style is um you know pixel art but also grayscale so pixel art's fairly um common among indie games but the the grayscale adds like a kind of like filter to it as well what's the, what's the reasoning behind that well uh i think you know um one of the characters sells newspapers and uh you know uh i used to work at a newspaper print shop in the morning and also uh, I worked at a kind of a, um, like a copy and print center too, and uh, you know when I was making copies of my own artwork, I discovered early that black and white is way cheaper than paying for color ink. <laughs> um, True that. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's definitely you know part of it for newspapers, but also you know something about economizing the art. Um, you know, uh, I figured it wouldn't have to be really great art if I just made a ton of it. Well, and was... making a bunch of it is oh please. Oh, no, sorry about that. I was just going to say I was really impressed with the um, mature content description that's on your Steam um, page. The developers describe the mature content like this, 16-bit nudity. <laughs> Delightful touch. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, we'll see how it balances out. Um, I mean, there's not a, we had a fourth character who was equally nude, but his shower pose is sadly underrepresented with only the three characters left, but <laughs> something that I suppose we could do is more, you know, variety in the postures of our remaining player characters, I suppose, during those moments. And earlier you were talking, um, you're a, you, you were a bit of an outsider in, or like an independent developer. Um, what's it been like working with, uh, would you, is Adox Studios like a, a third party mm -hmm. or, you know, um, so, like a partner, a partnership to bring this uh, yeah. back to life? I'm glad you used that word. That's, the, that's definitely the word that we've found the most, uh, or the best mutual understanding, I suppose, has always been through. Like, they don't like being called a publisher. They don't want people to get the idea that they're here to publish other people's games. They've got plenty of their own stuff they're excited to share. Um, this is, yeah, it's a, kind of a weird improvised partnership, and, and 
really embrace that spirit of that. Uh, I've definitely got so much to learn yeah. from uh, Ad Hoc Studio, who uh, I, I regard them all as, as very tall minds and, and have for a long time. So um, I, I guess, you know, during the, the short time that we have together working on Cart Life, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about how to tell stories through interactive media and to reflect, you know, fidelity on downstream consequences of player decisions and choices, um, especially with regard to, you know, character, foreshadowing, all this classic stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's, at the very least, that's what I'm hoping to get out of it, but um, also the, the structure, the, the kind of um, incredible speed that they operate in and uh, this, uh, you know, sort of streamlined routine that they've got down for continuous integration. Their team is all across the planet. Yeah, that's it's such a thrill to be a part of it. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're learning a lot, and I imagine they're getting um, you know something out of working with you as well. Getting to um, you know work with uh, someone who's I would say like the uh, an an auteur in video games, which is um, you know you you've got a very significant stamp with this game and the style. Uh, I don't think there's really anything else like it. Um, so yeah, I'm sure they they're getting something out of it as well. They still claim to, but, you know, they're getting increasingly vague as we get towards <laughs> our deadline about what those benefits might be. So uh, maybe something really material and concrete is in store, but I'll have to at least try to keep my mouth shut about it. Nice. <laughs> um, Richard, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. What's uh, what's in the future for um, Cart Life and for you? You know, uh, I, I think... We do have a, a, a very sweet, very small window of time to still do everything that we can to make this game uh, better, to, you know, more surprising and, and deeper. But, um, you know, it, 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 until now, I, I can't put into words like how affirming it, it's been for these kind of, still kind of can't help but regard them as a bit naive, even though they've been sort of redeemed and gratified through the responses of others and that's I suppose like something I, I couldn't stay away from is the fact that you know video games can reach people as far away as you are yeah and um it's just makes me want to make more of them I hope that's what I get to do on the other side of this yeah that's um well we're looking forward to the release of Cart Life so um Cart Life on Steam, it's available uh, sometime this year. Can you give us a, a narrow it down a little bit, or is that a uh, uh, need-to-know basis? Uh, this year seems pretty narrow to me, but you know, uh, <laughs> okay. I, hope that's, I hope that's specific enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so, thank you for uh, calling out the Steam page. So, uh, thank you so much for that. No problem. Um, so get on to Steam now and uh, chuck it on your wish list. And uh, when it's ready, you um, you can get it in your your hot little hands. Um, Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much. No good, problem. Uh, good luck with the rest of the season. Have a great episode. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Um, Ro, what's what's some weird stuff we got going on? This is weird news of the week. Oh, there's so much afoot. Well, I guess it's slightly not weird, but it was just a little bit of a quick one. Um, so Privacy Act, it's under review and it's a great opportunity for everyone to have their say. Digital Rights Watch, who um, we know and love on the show, and you can just find them at digitalrightswatch.org.au, they've put together a really handy blog post outlining how to make a submission to the government's review and reform of the 
Privacy Act. So huge changes are coming about how businesses handle our data and we all have to have a say. So directed at the government ASAP, submissions close on the 31st, so it's looming super fast. Um, it's easy though. You don't have to write like a 30-word paper. It's all set up with like little quick questionnaires and comments and stuff. So give it a rip. Yeah, and very, very appropriate considering the news article earlier about... Latitude. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, did you see it? The Pope's fresh fit. He was wearing oh. a, a very comfortable looking uh, head-to-toe puffer jacket. Um Actually, actually, wasn't a thing. Um, so uh, it looked uh, for a brief moment like the Pope was moving out of the Vatican and into Pasco Vale. <laughs> After a photo of him wearing a white, elegant puffer jacket went viral. Except, of course, it was AI. Um, Devo. Yeah, I, I haven't been fooled by many. Well. How would I know? But I feel like I'm getting pretty good at pointing out the AI ones. This one did sting me. What about oh, you? It totally stung me too. And I was also completely devo. This was the best innovation I'd seen a Pope get up to since the Pope Mobile. And it was all fake. But we just wanted to quickly shout out um, an upcoming event, Girls in Tech Australia Conference, Wednesday, 10th of May. It's an all-day thing at Cargo Hall down at South Wharf. Um, full-day event, keynotes, panel discussions, all of the good things. Tickets are from $95 to $500 depending on your chosen program and you can go virtually or on-site tickets via Eventbrite. Um, so that's it. That's the end of the show. Uh, you've been listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR. Uh, thanks so much to our guests, uh, Professor Rob Sparrow and Richard Hoffmeyer. Um, thanks to you, Ro, for coming on the show and panelling with me. Oh, Dan, thanks for having us. No problem. Uh, also, thanks to Elizabeth McCarthy and Adam Christou and our podcaster, uh, Carrie Smith. We've been Bite Into It and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Stay tuned now for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. Triple R.